Welcome, friend, to our continued journey along the Celtic Way. On our previous walks, we have entered into the places and stories of Patrick. Today, we're moving on from Patrick to look at the story of a woman, Bridget, who lived around the same time as him. From unlikely beginnings, God led Bridget on a path to spiritual leadership and influence. And she'll give us a window into how God leads us to become who we were created to be as well. Before we hear more, let's begin our walk with a sensory warm-up to help us ground ourselves in our body. Today, we're going to do this with a particular focus, trees. You'll have noticed by now that our pilgrimage is grouped into roots and branches, and today's story will explore that imagery even more. So to prepare, I invite you to take these next few minutes to appreciate trees in a way you may never have considered, a way that may even take you outside your comfort zone, but that will certainly shift your perspective of trees going forward. Intrigued? Let's get started. Whether you're in a forest or a city park, on a university campus, or in a suburban neighborhood, Look around you and notice the trees. Is there a particular tree that captures your attention? If you're able, I invite you to approach this tree. I'll give you a few seconds to get there, but feel free to press pause if you need more time to walk over to it. When you arrive next to the tree, give it your full attention. With a posture of humility and gratitude, start by looking at the base of the trunk and slowly work your way up. Without touching it, notice the texture of its bark. Look at how the branches take form and spread out. Are there a few or many branches? How far up the trunk do they begin? Would they be strong enough to carry the weight of a human, or are they more fragile in stature? Observe any leaves, or perhaps pine needles, palms, or flowers. Imagine what the view looks like from the very top of your tree. Close your eyes if that helps you. Are there other living beings who call this tree home or who use it for food? What does this tree smell like? Don't be afraid to be a little odd and put your nose right up to the bark if you want. How does this tree feel to the touch? How does your body feel as you look at or touch this tree?
maybe there's a way your body wants to respond. If so, honor that instinct. Maybe this is by making further contact with the tree or some other kind of gesture, or even a few words. Next, I invite you to move to a place from which you can see the whole tree. Take a few seconds now to get there. This time, start by looking at the very top of the tree. Let your eyes follow a path down its branches, small branches attaching to bigger branches joining with bigger branches still, until they meet the main trunk. Continue your gaze down the main trunk until it reaches the ground. Let's now imagine what this tree looks like underground. Imagine the roots branching out, spreading in all directions. The majority of the roots of most trees are found in the top three feet of soil, and they can extend well beyond a tree's drip line, meaning the roots can cover an area up to three times the diameter of the leafy canopy above. Using your imagination, look at the whole tree and visualize the roots spreading out. Look around at other trees and imagine their roots spreading out underground as well. In and around these roots are fungi that look like tiny, thread-like structures. These fungi have a symbiotic relationship with the trees. Above ground, trees make energy from carbon dioxide and sunlight and then send some of that energy, in the form of liquid sugar, into their roots, where it's shared with the fungi. The fungi return the favor by bringing the tree water, minerals, and other nutrients. In addition to the mutually beneficial relationship between an individual tree and the fungi surrounding its roots, there's an underground network of microscopic mycelia, sometimes cleverly called the wood wide web. These are tiny hair-like filaments produced by the fungi, and a single handful of healthy soil from a forest may contain several miles of these mycelia if you laid them end to end. This underground fungal network connects the trees in an area, providing a pathway for the sharing of sugars and information between trees. A small sapling struggling to grow in a part of the forest where there's less light may receive extra nutrients shuttled to it from its family of surrounding trees. And not necessarily even trees of the same kind. Trees have been observed to share nutrients with members of different tree species, forming an allyship that benefits all. This network is also used as a pathway of communication between trees, through which they warn each other about drought, pests, and predators. While it's common to see a tree as just an individual being, every tree and every being 
is part of a much larger community of life. And it's from this new vantage point that we enter into the lessons our walk holds before us. in Kildare, on the edge of a grassy plain, there stood an ancient oak tree. Its branches were twisted but sturdy. They had been home to too many nests to count. Its trunk was thick after weathering blizzards, lightning storms, and wars. By its mighty appearance, you would never detect any evidence of the small acorn from which it came. We can imagine that many centuries before, a small woodland creature, perhaps over-eager with its haul of nuts, left this fortunate acorn behind on the hilltop. Uneaten, the warmth of the sun coaxed it to sprout, and the spring rains nudged it to germinate. The fertile soil invited it to send down a taproot, and the heavens beckoned it to shoot upward. Throughout its early years, this new seedling faced many dangers, including hungry wildlife. Nevertheless, it steadily succeeded in becoming a slender sapling. And the sapling grew into a small tree. And the small tree patiently continued to grow taller and broader, maturing with every change of the season. Its roots, though unseen, stretched far and wide, anchoring the expanding giant to the earth. Its sprawling canopy served as a source of food and habitat for all manner of other plants, insects, and animals. About a hundred miles from that mighty oak in 451 AD, a baby girl named Bridget cuddled in the arms of her mother, The mother, Bracca, had been abducted into slavery and brought from Scotland to Ireland, a story much like Patrick's. In fact, tradition says it was Patrick himself who introduced Bracca to the God of Jesus and baptized her with his own hands in the name of the Trinity. Bridget's father was the chieftain of Leinster, and he was her mother's master. Thus, the little girl should have been destined to a life governed by the whims of those with power over her, her father, her brothers, the rulers of the land. The stories say that, at one point in her youth, Bridget's father tried to sell her into servitude to a local king. Another time, her brothers and father conspired to have her married to a rich nobleman, eager to collect the hefty dowry for themselves. But something else took root in Bridget's life from a young age. A sense of calling, seeds of faith, a solid foundation in the love of Jesus, the God of her mother, a determination that her God, and not the people in power, 
would have the final say in her future. Her life path would not be decided by her identity as the child of an enslaved mother, nor the offspring of a powerful chieftain. Neither would her life be defined by her femaleness, nor all the politics of marriage brokering or motherhood. Instead, her identity would be cultivated by God. Bridget sensed a calling that her life was a gift that she would offer to God. To the dismay of her father, she refused the cultural norms and family expectations to marry. She found a bishop who would consecrate her into the vocational life of serving God that she knew she was called to. But something strange happened on the evening of her consecration as a nun. When Bridget knelt to pray, the story says that the bishop was intoxicated with the grace of God, and in that moment, he read the wrong rites of consecration over Bridget. Instead of simply consecrating Bridget as nun to devote her life to Christ, he consecrated Bridget as a bishop, a spiritual leader. As a woman in that era, Bridget would have been excluded from such a path of formal spiritual leadership, but God's Spirit intervened to open it to her. Instead of calling it a mistake, the bishop and everyone else recognized that it was the Holy Spirit at work, intervening, and Bridget became the only female bishop in the land. She became Bishop of Caldera, which means the Church of the Oak. This same God has planted an identity within you. Before you were born, at the very origins of your being, God planted the acorn of who you are and the oak of who you would become. And this same spirit is drawing out and cultivating your God-given identity. Through much of my childhood, through young adulthood, I got the message that I was too much. In my family, I was too rebellious, too argumentative, too headstrong. Outside my family, I heard that I was too smart, too strong, too intimidating. I was just too much. Perhaps because my family liked my smarts and my strengths, I never tried to dumb myself down to please others, but I did reject my leadership gifts. Stepping up in leadership just brought rejection from potential boyfriends, but especially within Christian circles. While my male friends were working on becoming stronger leaders, I worked on softer skills, mercy, counseling, empathy. Some years later, I took a spiritual gifts test that required me to ask two people who knew me well to list my top gifts. So imagine my shock and horror when leadership, prophecy, and teaching, the things I had avoided, came out as my top three gifts. No! Orlando, our other guide on the Celtic Way, 
was one of the two people who evaluated me. And then he had the thankless job of helping me process this and break out of the box I'd put myself in. I'm not too much for God. Or too little. God did not make a mistake in creating me with all my strengths. And God can cover me with all my weaknesses. God did not make a mistake in creating you either. Psalm 139 speaks volumes about the beauty of God's intimate presence with each of us from the very beginning of our lives. And it speaks to the vulnerability of being truly known and deeply loved just as you are, while yet being summoned to grow fully into who you were created to be. You may have heard this psalm many times before, but as you listen to it now, in this paraphrased version, let the words be spoken over you and encourage you to be present to the God who sees, knows, and loves you. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 18. God, investigate my life. Get all the facts firsthand. I'm an open book to you. Even from a distance, you know what I'm thinking. You know when I leave and when I get back. I'm never out of your sight. You know everything I'm going to say before I start the first sentence. I look behind me, and you're there. Then up ahead, and you're there too. Your reassuring presence, coming and going. This is too much, too wonderful. I can't take it all in. Is there any place I can go to avoid your spirit? To be out of your sight? If I climb to the sky, you're there. If I go underground, you're there. If I flew on morning wings to the far western horizon, you'd find me in a minute. You're already there waiting. Then I said to myself, oh, he even sees me in the dark. At night, I'm immersed in the light. It's a fact. Darkness isn't dark to you. Night and day, darkness and light, they're all the same to you. Oh yes, you shaped me first inside, then out. You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, high God. You're breathtaking. Body and soul, I am marvelously made. I worship in adoration. What a creation! You know me, inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made, bit by bit. How I was sculpted from nothing into something. Like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life, all prepared, 
before I'd even lived one day. Your thoughts, how rare, how beautiful. God, I'll never comprehend them. I couldn't even begin to count them any more than I could count the sand of the sea. Oh, let me rise in the morning and live always with you. In another version of this psalm, there's a footnote that translates verse 17 as, How precious are your thoughts concerning me. The implication is that God has millions of thoughts about each of us, which is astounding and speaks to how precious we are. I invite you to let that truth sink into your soul now as you respond in prayer. In a moment, I'll suggest a couple of phrases from this psalm that you can use for your prayer today, but you can also choose something else from the psalm that suits you. Let's take a few minutes to pay attention to our breath, breathing in and breathing out. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Exhale it out through your mouth. Maybe find a rhythm of breathing that more or less matches the rhythm of your footsteps. Breathe in and breathe out. Breathe in and breathe out. Choose one of the following to use as your simple breath prayer. You know me inside and out. You know me inside and out. Or, God, you think of me. God, you think of me. Use the phrase that best helps you remind yourself how beloved you are to God and take the next few minutes to say it as your prayer to God, either silently or aloud.
As with Bridget, we encounter stories of people throughout Scripture who discover and choose to live into their God-given identities in unexpected ways and in community with others. During the time when the people of Israel had no king and were ruled by judges, they seemed to be losing their identity as God's people. And as Judges 23-25 says, Everyone did as they saw fit. However, in the midst of this time, the short book of Ruth shows two seemingly unremarkable women grow in their identity as part of God's big story. When we meet Ruth and Naomi along the road heading out of Moab, Naomi has been widowed and her two sons have also died, leaving her and her two daughters-in-law without the social structure of marriage that provided women a clear identity in their context. Naomi decided to return to her home village, Bethlehem, in Israel, and encouraged the other women to remain in their homeland, Moab, and remarry. However, Ruth refused and claimed a new identity from this point. She would stay with Naomi and leave her homeland. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Naomi, because of the death of her husband and sons in a foreign land, also claimed a new identity, that of bitterness. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi refused to be called by her original name, which means pleasantness. Instead, she took on the name Mara, which means bitter. The beauty of this moment is that Naomi was honest. And that's okay. Ruth received her as she was. We can trust that Ruth saw that Naomi is more than Mara, more than bitter. But she held space for Naomi to feel the loss, feel the grief, anger, and bitterness. Ruth is a picture of Hesed. God's steadfast love to Naomi, trusting that God would ultimately bring Naomi healing. As these women, one a foreigner in Israel, the other one returning home, engaged with the reality of their situation, they supported one another and in doing so grew in their God-given identities. Ruth provided basic sustenance for both of them as she went out to glean in the fields. Naomi provided guidance for Ruth to eventually marry Boaz, the kinsman in whose field Ruth worked, who protected her, and who served as a redeemer for both women. Through these interactions, Naomi, who had taken on the identity of bitterness, was now surrounded by a new family, and she became mother to Ruth's son Obed. And Ruth, the foreigner was welcomed and grafted into the covenant of the God of Israel. 
Moreover, she became the great-grandmother of King David, a direct ancestor of Jesus. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Through their faithfulness in the daily struggles, mundane tasks, and joys of their life together, God shaped the identity of these women and his people. Ruth and Naomi's story and the story of Bridget invite us to continue along this way, to allow God to cultivate the identities and callings he's given us, to be like these women, who, when they courageously stepped into their identities, allowed God to weave their stories into his story. Bridget's faith impacted her immediate community and generations of Irish people to come. Ruth's lineage impacted Naomi and all of humanity with the arrival of her descendant, Jesus. The starting place for this is an invitation to let the core of your identity be rooted in the soil of God's steadfast love. You are loved and known by God. That is who you are. This may sound simple, and yet, to really know this, to really believe this in the deepest part of your being, to let God love you, is hard. We spend so much time trying to be more and achieve more. We let other people's voices or expectations tell us who we are or who we are not. We listen to lies. We tell ourselves lies about who we are. But God's steadfast love remains, inviting us to receive, inviting us to know that we are beloved. Let's return to the tree imagery from earlier. Though this time, imagine yourself as a tree. What stage of growth are you in? Do you feel like a young sapling, vulnerable in its development? Or more mature, after weathering some storms? Or some stage in between? Imagine your roots going down and spreading out into the depths of God's love for you. What would it look like in your life if, at the core of your being, you were deeply rooted in God's love for you?
as God nurtures your tree, calling you to grow and become who you were created to be, is there anything that's stunting your growth? Does the soil need tending? Are there any branches that need to be pruned? Maybe these are in the form of unhelpful identities, lies, or expectations that have been spoken over you. On the other hand, are there things God says about you that are true, that you need to step into that will help you flourish? Are there aspects of your identity or calling that you sense God inviting you to courageously engage? Spend the next few moments walking and resting in God's love, letting God tell you who you are, letting God love you. Of course, growing into our God-given identities, becoming the people we were created to be, doesn't happen in isolation. Even a little acorn doesn't become a mighty oak tree on its own. As we learned at the start of our walk, trees grow and interact in community. Forests of trees teach us that God has created a world where all living things grow in community. We need each other to become who we are meant to be. Going back to Brigid, we discover the practice of Anamkara, which means soul friend in Gaelic. Anamkara was central to the spirituality of early Celtic Christians. Of course, the idea of soul-nurturing friendship is as old as Ruth and Naomi and so many other biblical stories of intentional deep friendship. But in Ireland, it is first written about in association with Brigid. In Kildare, which to remind you means Church of the Oak, Brigid founded a community that was committed to soul care through Anam Kara. She devoted herself to the care and orderly direction of souls. Practicing what she preached, Brigid had her own soul friend, Bishop Conleth, with whom she co-led the co-ed community at Kildare. And Bridget was a soul friend to many people who sought out her wisdom and spiritual direction. 
One of Bridget's biographies shows us just how important Bridget thought Anam Kara was to the life of following Jesus. A young cleric came to visit Bridget, someone that she knew, and they sat down to eat dinner. The young man had just started eating when Bridget stopped him suddenly and asked, Do you have a soul friend? I do, the man replied. We need to sing his requiem, Bridget said. As they had been eating, Bridget had had a vision that this man's soul friend had just passed away. She told the man, Let's stop what we're doing. Don't eat another bite until you go and find a new soul friend. Anyone without a soul friend is like a body without a head. Anyone without a soul friend is like a body without a head. Without a soul friend, we can't function the way we ought to. We can't live to our full potential. We need this sort of soul-tending friendship to grow into who we are meant to be, to become who God intended each of us to be. So what might Anam Kara look like today? Let's hear a few stories of friends from the Celtic Way who have experienced the profound effects of walking with their soul friends. We'll first hear a familiar voice, our other guide, Orlando Crespo, followed by Sarah Schilling, who is InterVarsity Link staff in France. Luis Alvarez and I have been spiritual friends for a very long time. We first met when I became his InterVarsity campus minister at Hunter College 33 years ago. Luis was one of my wise and competent young leaders who was able to go back to his Spanish church and bring what he'd learned into fruitful leadership there. He was bold enough to say yes to my recommendation that he be a student panelist up in front of 17,000 people at an Urbana student missions conference in the 90s. And courageous enough to take my suggestions for certain steps in his dating relationships. No longer doing life together on the same campus, we've remained in contact through phone calls, biking, and attending a pastor's support group together. Just as I was present with Lewis and his early spiritual development, he was there in deep moments of crisis in my own life. When my oldest son almost died the same year my father and my best friend died, I experienced a crisis of faith like nothing I had ever faced. Lewis was there to encourage me and pray for me. And what became the most critical factor in me holding on to faith, he invited me to be a part of a Latino minister's support group called the Latino Leadership Circle. There, I finally learned how to grieve my father and my best friend's death. For many years, our journeys were interconnected through this vital support group that provided both of us with the spiritual and emotional guidance we needed. We continue to remain close spiritual friends as we fellowship with our families and do ministry together. We even pursued further theological study together and received the same seminary degree. If anyone has traveled with me in my ministry journey in all its ups and downs, 
It has been Luis. Compadre in Spanish is a term of deep reverence and friendship between men. Luis and I have made each other stronger in our faith, more dedicated in our call to mission, and more joyful in our love for God. And for that reason, Luis Alvarez is and will always be mi compadre y fiel amigo en Cristo. beginning to emerge from a long, dark night of the soul when God brought Renee into my life, and she quickly became the first person I could call a soul sister. In the six years prior, I'd slid into a pit of depression as what I'd dreamed for my life came crashing down around me. I'd expected to be healthy in my late 20s, rather than suffering from debilitating chronic pain and illness. I'd expected the engagement ring I picked out to be slid on my finger, rather than the relationship turning toxic. I'd expected to become an entrepreneur, the kind who makes it onto those 30 under 30 lists, instead of being hamstrung by student and business debt. I'd expected to live in a big city, perhaps with roommates, sure, but at least not back in my childhood bedroom with my parents in the suburbs. And yet there I was, sick, single, broke, completely lost. And with every dashed hope of who I thought I'd be by then, or become one day, my heart became more and more entangled in a kind of spiritual barbed wire. I was a mess, but somehow I clung to the tiniest shred of belief that God would have to come through. And if God didn't, then... Well, then I didn't know how I would keep living at all. And that's the rough terrain where God chose to plant something new in me and in Renee as we found ourselves back in the same Midwestern town where we'd both grown up, but 20 years apart. In fact, not long into our friendship, we used to joke that I was like Mary, not a teenager, but newly pregnant with Jesus, a new thing God was doing. And she was like Elizabeth, older and pregnant with John, who would make straight the way for Jesus. We didn't know it at first, but we were both on similar journeys. She trusted hers would someday take her back to France, where she'd lived earlier in life. And though I didn't know what this new thing would be for me, Renee fiercely contended with God for what it would take for me to figure it out. It's like her soul recognized something of her own calling within mine, and vice versa. Our friendship mostly consisted of eating, chatting, and then getting down to work praying for each other. She had a way of communicating with God in prayer that I found intriguing, since I wasn't used to listening to God like that, and I was eager to practice. We did so weekly, sometimes more often, for nearly four years. I did the math once, and it's entirely possible we spent upwards of 300 hours together in prayer. 
those were not easy hours. When I say Renee fiercely contended for my future, I mean fiercely. And I for hers. With all the barbed wire wrapped around my heart, and all the waiting she'd been doing for God to open the door back to France for her, we were quite the pair in prayer. Bit by bit, by agonizing bit, Renee joined me as I wrestled with God, with the lies I'd believed about who I was, with the false hopes of who I thought I was supposed to be. And week by week, she'd help peel away a layer of barbed wire as I repented of one thing after another, one or both of us crying. And we'd invite the Holy Spirit to replace all the lies and broken dreams with truth and hope. And then, God did just that. God invited me to new dreams, bigger dreams than what I would have imagined for myself. In Paris, France, of all places. A place I'd only spent two days on a whirlwind high school trip through Europe. A place Renee, my sole sister, had lived more than a decade prior, thus knitting our stories together further. It took a while before both of us were actually living on French soil, Renee in the south and me about six months later in the north. And with those big moves, our season of intense soul friendship came to a close. It was a season that was critical to me becoming ready to receive God's invitation to dream again, with him, for my future. And it soon became clear that God had other things in store for us separately, things that would grow better in new soil for each of us. Renee has a new prayer partner where she lives. As for me, with a vision for soul friendship deeply instilled in me, I now have prayer partners on both sides of the Atlantic. Over in the U.S., there are two Marys, if you will, to whom I am now the Elizabeth. We pray together via Zoom every two weeks or so, and they both speak truth to me as much as I do them. Journeying with those two younger women shows me just how far I've come because of all God did through my friendship with Renee. I also have a pair of prayerful friends here in Paris. They help me pull out the remaining bits of barbed wire that began to stick out more prominently once I stepped into another culture. I'd spent the majority of my life immersed in American ambition, urgency, and perfectionism, and my French friends don't praise that drive the way fellow Christians do in the U.S., Instead, with their French-grown faith, they exhort me to a gentler way of living. More recently, too, we've helped each other hold on tight to God's promises for each of us while the entire world was turned upside down. And I do want to hold on to what God has created and called me to do over here. Sometimes that's even involved praying for others alongside Renee at Christian conferences here in Europe. In my friendships, both new and old, there's plenty of shared pain and grit, but we press into it for the sake of love, believing and contending for the best God has for each of us.
Maybe it's because I'm an extrovert, or maybe it's because I come from a communal culture. But my top three most meaningful spiritual disciplines all involve other people. I didn't know I was already practicing Anamkara. My most important spiritual discipline has been praying every morning for two minutes with my husband. For over 20 years now, we wake up, hold each other, and ask God to give the other a great day, and then finish together with the Lord's Prayer. It's amazing how God has used two measly minutes of prayer every morning to transform our marriage. My second most important discipline has been meeting bi-weekly with my women's prayer group. Since 2004, we've been a Nam Kara to one another through mental illness, through kid problems, marriage problems, infidelity, disease, and even death. We have been Jesus' hands and feet to one another. We've exposed our souls to each other, and we've pointed each other to who God has made us each to be. My third most important discipline has been meeting with a spiritual director monthly. This appointment gives me the chance to focus on what's really going on in my soul and to hear God's invitation through the listening ears of a discerning guide. This discipline has been so helpful to me that I actually trained to become a spiritual director myself. I do pray alone. I really enjoy silent three-day retreats. I even have some introverted practices. But I hear God best in and through relationship with others. Time and time again, these relationships help me come out of shame and into God's truth, healing, and grace. There's no best way to go about soul friendship. You might meet in person or virtually, occasionally or frequently. And like the young cleric, your soul friend may change over time for a variety of reasons. No matter what, these friendships point us to a deeper relationship with Jesus, the ultimate Anamkara. Now that you've heard a few examples of how Anamkara can be lived out, take a moment to see what God may want you to know about soul friendship in your own life. If you have someone you consider a soul friend, you might simply spend the next few moments in gratitude for them. Or perhaps listen instead for God's invitation to new healing he wants to bring to either of you. If you don't yet have a soul friend journeying with you, maybe God is inviting you to consider this practice. Is there a consistent friend with whom you could more intentionally share your walk with God? Or is there an opportunity for something more formal, perhaps with a spiritual director or pastoral counselor? Take some time to pray about this now.
I hope today's walk has encouraged you and that you're inspired to find and nurture such soul friendship. May you know at your core that God loves you and longs for you to be fully who you are. As we saw in today's stories, this is not just for the flourishing of your own tree. God, with his perspective on the whole forest, is also writing a larger story, cultivating a community that is journeying with each other and with Jesus. Jesus.